Drop. You are listening to Story Forward, the podcast brought to you by the same people who did Story Forward Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest. We are your hosts. I am Larry Rosen. Across the table from me, as always, Story Fort founder Christian Wynn. Yes, co-founder. Co-founder. Can't, always can't take all the credit. credit. But no, co-founder. And yes, we're here. This week, road trips. Road trips. Yes, the summer road trip. It's the middle of summer. And there's kind of nothing more epic in my mind than a classic summer road trip. And you were to say that you don't love traveling in the summer because of all the people, but it's just so nice to be out there when it's warm in the middle of America. And I have some (laughs) stories about all this, but uh, yeah. We definitely want to hear some of those stories because I know we're both pretty committed road trip guys. Yes. Um, And and as I quoted, it was probably more of a... uh, semi-quote from On the Road, because I don't really remember what the quote was, the but there was something yeah. in there, a paraphrase, uh, that summer is the great that great time of traveling. And it is true that people love to travel in the summer, which is why I don't, because they're all there. Right. <laughs> you said you prefer when the kids go back to school and the roads are emptier. Right. The roads and, and the, all of the attractions and, and the hotels and all that stuff. Um, you had mentioned on the road, and that actually kind of segues into a couple of epic road trips that I've taken. Because mm-hmm. it's early, early 90s, 91, and again in 94 for like two and three months at a time. And having really kind of fallen for the beats and Kerouac back in the, my early 20s. Like, as I, like all young men. Yes. Literary aspirations it often seemed, do. Yeah. That seemed like a good thing to save up what is crazy now. $1,500 is all we each had, three of us, to travel for like two plus months. Between the three of you? Well, each had $1,500. Oh, okay. okay. So, but yeah, we had saved up that money, <laughs> which is really so little, but gas was very cheap back then. And um, if I'm not mistaken, you had a Volkswagen van with Mr. Magoo on it. I did. One of our friends, Scott Morell, had mm. painted Mr. Magoo like striding forward into the day. <laughs> Did, you know, it, did did you understand that Mr. Magoo was blindly stepping forward into the day? We, well, that was Morel's <laughs> joke, I think, about yeah. the whole thing because he knew we were very foolhardy in many ways because I actually bought that van. This was on the big tire that's in front, the big tire right. cover. So Mr. Magoo, which I think I still have somewhere, but he's what, a great artist and it was... It was what pretty, year was the van? The van was a 75 Volkswagen Ooh. van that I bought... Oh my gosh. It it lasted, let's say, we were in Seattle at the time, and it lasted until we got to Boise, Idaho, because I bought this van with a rebuilt engine, and it was leaking oil like crazy, and I <laughs> took it back to the guy who fixed it, supposedly, and it never really got fixed. So by the time we got to my grandmother's house in outside of Pendleton, Oregon, in Helix, this little tiny farming, wheat farming community, but um, so the, we were leaking oil all over the place. My uncle lived in Boise. We made it over here in 1991, and we had to quickly buy a brand new engine, a replacement engine for this van, and we were only about eight hours What from did home. that cost out of the 4500 you had between the three of you? Yes, it cost... About 900 and some odd dollars. So it took a big dent out of our overall budget. I paid half of it, and I made my two other friends, Dave and Calvin, pay for half of it. Just because I had bought the van, it was mine, and you I, know, I figured that was fair. It's held in with four bolts. You could have unbolted it, <laughs> stolen another one from another car, 
replaced yours, your dead engine, in their car, so they just would have thought their engine died. This is true, but we we weren't that savvy. I no, guess I don't know. We were good boys. Well, the other, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Beats as an inspiration for yes. your road trip adventures, because I think On the Road is a good example of, maybe the biggest example of using road trips in literature. Yes. Today, our guest is going to be our good friend, Johnny Evison, who wrote a book. So he has five novels. He just just released a, a new one, Legends of the North Cascades, his most ambitious novel by far. It seems to be how many, 47 characters or something it's ridiculous. Like a, yeah, like 1,300 <laughs> year span. Mm-hmm. But he's, all, he's known, he, his first novel, West of Here, was will, really well received, as were his ensuing novels, Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, and Lawn Boy. Lawn Boy. Uh, he's a regular at the Story Fort. Um, he's he's a legend. He's of, a legend of Story, uh, Story Fort. Fort. He really and, is. Uh, Tree Fort, and he's a he's a, a really generous writer and, and human. And he was, and he'll always, you know, if we ask him, do you want to come on a podcast? He will always do it. Uh, this time, though. We have him on for a very specific reason to talk about his book, Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, which is a road trip book. Mm -hmm. And to figure out why an author chooses that particular vehicle, (laughs) pun intended, (laughs) uh, to move a plot, uh, to reveal character, and just to get things moving. Right. And you... You'll find out as you listen to this interview. Larry Rosen revealed to the author <laughs> that he actually has several road trip books. But he's just like, I don't. I think I only have one. And no. then you're like, No, every book. No, every almost. book. <laughs> so, so he is. Uh, I think he was pretty delighted by that self discovery or your discovery of his. Uh, I don't know, modus operandi. I, <laughs> I couldn't tell if he was happy about it or kind of like, wait a minute. Because I think it's, <laughs> you're right, I'm a hack. All I do is write road trip books. <laughs> uh, no. but, so we're going to get to him in a moment. And then after that, uh, Jared Bostrom. Going to give us a road trip correspondent story that's going to be super great too. So he's one of our Storyport team members as well and is our, our editor on this podcast. Yeah, One of our primary editors. Brett it, also helps us out with that. If the word for him, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Before we get to that, though, I do want to talk a little bit more about road trips um, and kind of what they mean to you and to me. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you are driven? Why do you love road trips? Why do I love road trips? Well, I mean, it's, there's something, I mean, it's meditative while you're out there. Um, It just... You know, you kind of are unplugged generally these days still, even when I'm out there on the road. And in living in Boise, it's really easy or, you know, it's convenient to get away or, well, it's quick to get away from most civilization, you know, yeah. around here. We're pretty isolated. And so I've really enjoyed living in Idaho these last 20 plus years. But just in those old trips, you know, also back in the early 90s, just that sense of like kind of not knowing where you're going to end up. We didn't really, we had certain plans in place and I'll still do that. In fact, this weekend, I think I'm going to be hitting the road um, to head to points east of Boise, but just kind of going without a particular destination and being able to find all kinds of interesting Americana out there, I think is was one of, it's still one of the, the main draws for me. You know why I really like, because I was at the point and COVID took this away. I, I don't, for, for me, I, I, I was never a uh, months long road trip guy. I'm a days long road trip guy, but I really crave them. And if I was more like, oh, I'm going to go see my parents when they lived in Arizona, I'm like, I'm going to take four days to get there. Right. And my favorite part was always getting into the town, 
walking around the town, imagining mm -hmm. what it's like to live in the town, and then going to the bar and talking to the people who live there. Because I Absolutely. have never heard a boring story. <laughs> and I've never not been surprised by people. And that's Absolutely. the great, and talk about characters. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, there's many a story I could tell about our, those, those epic two and three month road trips where we just met so many kind people. We didn't really run into any troubles out there. Even in like New York City, we're going through New York and they're like, here from Washington, what are you doing here? You know, we're in traffic <laughs> and paying to tolls all the way through um, the that's city. That's funny because so. I don't think of road trips as ending up in big cities. Well, we... On our second big road trip, just we did shoot it for watching a lot of baseball. Oh, okay. But that was 1994, and you know what happened in 1994? Baseball strike. Baseball strike. We got to Wrigley, and we so we had planned to go to these larger cities to see some baseball, but we got screwed by MLB and or the owners. I can't remember who actually started that one. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Yeah. It took steroids to fix but, that one. But yeah, I mean, just finding those people, and then they remember Hills, Iowa was a very memorable one where there are are no hills. It's very flat in, this, <laughs> in the middle of cornfields. And we stopped to go to Hills Iowa and get a haircut at this little barbershop. And we met at a meeting people and we stayed there like a couple days after that, these old farmers. And it was the middle of summer, super hot. And they're inside the bar in the middle of the afternoon telling stories. And that was just amazing. I'll tell you what, I think people would be a lot less angry if they took road trips. Yeah. I used to say when I lived in San Francisco that all the San Franciscans should be forced to drive across the country at least once every five years. I agree. We have a friend, um, our friend Greg Hahn, who maybe you know. He have recently taken it during COVID. He took a giant road trip. That's at, right. To go visit his family back in Indiana, and and he had a very similar response. You know, to like it was, but especially during COVID, and especially during so much. Oh, tumult of 2020. Yeah. And it was, he was very much refreshed by that and it's, like connecting with Americans who maybe didn't quite align with his overall beliefs, but just his, his sense of like camaraderie that's out there. Yeah. It's always harder to dismiss and dehumanize when you actually go and talk to people. It's true. I've found. And speaking of talking to people, we've got a little long for our yeah. intro here. I so know. we're going to get into the interview and enjoy Johnny Evison's take on Writing road trips. Yes, and he comes in with a really great story towards the end of the interview of his own epic road trip. <laughs> oh, that's when right. He was a young young man. So, <laughs> anyway, enjoy. Listen up. I just want to uh, welcome Johnny Evison to the Story Forward podcast, and this week, as part of our exploration of summer stories, we want to talk about road trip stories. And uh, I know you are going to be a wealth of information about writing and experiencing road trip stories. But before we get into that, I do want to touch a little bit on how you spent your pandemic. Cause I think how you spent your pandemic is pretty inspirational for all of us. The amount of writing you did. Yeah. Well, God, there's nothing else to do. We were all on lockdown up at the cabin. Uh, my nephews were both with us. Uh, my mom was with us a part of the time. So we had a pod of like eight people. And so I had plenty of adults around to help me watch the kids. And, you know, I was, it was, it was pretty easy for me to, to get momentum going. Like usually I only get to work two and a half days a week. And so, but when I can string them together, uh, like each day gets more and more productive. If I can really start living inside the, it just takes less time to, to hit the ground running every day. It just like you, it, everything just snowballs. And so, yeah, I was hugely pr productive. And, and did you write multiple books at a time or did you go one after the other? Well, I wrote one that was like 800 pages long. Yeah. Um, 
And then I started another that was born. And I cut that one down to like 600 pages. But like of those remaining pages, I cut out because I cut out sections of character. I just had to drop a few characters. And uh, that kind of spun off into the Western, which is kind of like uh, comes out of the small world universe. But it's more of a California centered epic, whereas the other one's national. Mm. So that one just started writing itself after the other. So kind of like, you know, I don't know. I probably wrote like 1,200 pages or something. How many hours a day were you writing? I just varied. Yeah. I, I just, uh, some days an hour, some days six hours. But the thing is, is like, like I said, the, each hour, I mean, I can, when I'm in the full screen, I can do more in an hour than I might do in eight or 10 hours when I'm not in, in full stream. And that just gets easier and easier with uh, repetition. Yeah. And the 800 page one, that was Legends of the North Cascades. That's the one that almost killed you, right? <laughs> No, that that small world legends oh, okay. is be. I finished that before uh-huh. this. Yeah, small world. Yeah, it it was kind of like west of here was my my kind of training ground for that. You know, it's big multi point of view over 170 years, and uh, I w- I was actually not that hard to write. I, I I overwrote in the sense that I ended up including some characters that I need to purge later, but like pretty much it. <clears throat> really wound up as my initial uh, kind of like my initial conception for the novel I mean I really I was able to hit that easier than I was with West of Here where I got halfway through and it's like okay now I see what this is I mean I just fucking I wrote this thing like I was reading it because I did more outlining than 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 I think I ever had before because I had to because I'm juggling you know 16 narrative lines so I had to kind of put it out in the war room and like and then that just kept me like made me my own taskmaster. So, I mean, I literally looked, it looked like a to-do list every day that was like, you know, half the size of a wall, mm. but then I would just get in there and just start knocking them off, just knocking off scene after scene. And they would just write themselves. It was awesome. It was a perfect uh, escapism. It was like, I lived the novel more than I was sitting there crafting it, you know? Huh. Yeah. You would post those, um, those uh, whiteboards or whatever you were using on Facebook and it's pretty mm-hmm. is that is and I don't want to get too far in this because we, we're here to talk about road trips, but is that your usual uh, method or did you just break that out for these bigger stories? You were telling us before we got on here that you're you're swinging for the fences now and writing bigger stories. Is that something you broke out for the bigger stories or is that always how you've been writing? More so. I mean, it's relative. I always have them at some point, even if it's just like a lawn boy type of picaresque novel. At some point, I got to have that organization laid out somewhere. But I mean, I might do. 60 of these things for small world whereas i might only do five or six for a novel like like revised fundamentals of caregiving or something hmm. cool well, yeah we want to get into uh, some road trip stuff and thought of you because of uh well a couple of reasons we just like talking to you and hearing your stories but uh also just the revised fundamentals we came right to mind um so that obviously is a the road road trip novel. So, Larry, you had a couple of questions about that. So, before and and just to start on a, on a larger level, uh, thinking as a universal writer and not the writer of that specific book, why, you know, every every book is a journey. Uh, I guess a journey of the mind. It's a journey for the characters. But as the author of a book, why would you feel it necessary to introduce an actual road trip into a book? When is it necessary and appropriate to have your characters get into a car and go? And when they're stuck, you know, I mean, basically just when they're stuck, they literally, the movement just becomes a metaphor for them moving, you know, it's all about their psychic and 
the psychic and emotional growth. You know what I mean? And, and uh, a road trip provides uh, a built-in destination. You know what I mean? And uh, it forces them to move. And it's a great, I mean, I don't see myself necessarily writing another one ever. You know what I mean? But like the reason they're such a tried and true evergreen is because of these things, you know, the hero's journey. It's true. It can be, it can, it can delineate like a picaresque all at once, but there's always a goal. There's always a, you know, and really it just becomes about the interiority of the character. And then the, the, the landscape is really just kind of more uh, window dressing. Do you think Harriet Chance, one of your other novels, was a road trip book? Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, so, yeah, <laughs> just on a boat, sure. Yeah, you're right. I repeated myself again. They're all road trip novels now that I think about it. No. I mean, there's definitely something different about physically picking them up and moving them and having that trip be part of their interior journey. So let's talk about uh, revised fundamentals of caregiving. The question, one of the questions I had that I was talking to Chris about was, it's a chicken or egg question, but what came first? You know, the plot or the road trip? Were they inseparable? Or did you start writing and think, oh, I know what I need to do. I need to get these guys out of this house and have them go somewhere. Like you said, I mean, when it's exactly what you just said, because the, uh, people think of the novel, and part of this is because they see the movie. They really think of it as a road novel. But in the novel, it's really about 100 pages before, you know, a good 100 pages before the road trip stops or, or before it begins. And, and I had really taken these road trips it was part of my relationship with Case, who the book's dedicated to, who, 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 for whom I was a caregiver. I mean, he's basically, he's Trev, you know what I mean? And, and so we did, we took a bunch of road trips. I took him to Glacier, we went down to Crater Lake, we went to San Francisco, we took many. So, you know, I had the actual experience of traveling. Of course, see, the set pieces weren't the same, it wasn't the same, but certain elements of, you know, his uh, fastidiousness about uh, dashboard lights and little details like that is is uh regimen regimented thinking and you know all the meds all the all the uh i don't know that i thought when i started the novel i can't remember when i started the novel it was just going to be a story about irredeemable loss and the caregiving relationship and shedding it in a light like who's helping who here and i think the the road trip i think i just reached that point just like i did with case in real life where i'm like these guys are stuck i gotta move them gotta get them out of the house so you you do it as a jolt rather than I have a specific idea of what they're going to get out of this road trip. Let's get going already. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always intuitively before a novel even begins, have an idea what the character's dramatic art looks like, like what they're going to achieve emotionally, you know, relative to what they want. And, and so, I mean, in a way it was freeing because I didn't really have these set pieces, you know, uh, like beats along the way, I could kind of just, they meet the people on the side of the road as I felt the story called for, you know what I mean? I'm like, they're driving around and it's like, there's gotta be this pregnant girl, you know, changing a tire in the rain or this, you know? Um, so they sort of presented themselves when I just give myself to the story that way. But really I know I'm groping the whole time towards this place for these characters. Like Ben needed to have Ben needed to have to, to forgive himself and he needed to, by the end of the novel, I knew that he had to forgive himself and that he had to, to, to straighten things out with his wife. And, and, and by the end of the novel, I knew that Case had, or Trev rather, needed, had, to, had to make make good with his father, make amends with his father and needed to push the parameters of his you know, cloistered life. So they just sort of work in conjunction. I know the needs of the characters and then like 
the situations just present themselves, the opportunities present themselves to like, you know, put that stuff to the test. Did you outline out those opportunities or did they just kind of occur to you as you were going through? I think they mostly, there was a few set pieces, I think. I can't remember. You guys, I've written six books since then, but I, I remember there being a few set pieces, but I definitely had a feeling that I definitely over and over had the feeling that this stuff was presenting itself. Like I didn't, in, I didn't think, okay, I want to have this little teenage punk runaway girl until I had them park up at the thing. And I thought, you know, I need to introduce a character here just to step up the action just for rising action. And then, you know, this little homeless punk punk rock runaway girl shows up, you know what I mean? So again, it came, it comes from the need, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, but like in, in most cases with that novel, which made it so easy to write, I mean, because it just was compared to, I mean, it just, there is just so few concerns about the logic of the storytelling and juggling different points of view and, and continuity wrinkles and stuff. I mean, the novel was just, it was almost more like the verbal tradition, you know? I mean, it was just pretty straightforward, linear storytelling. I I understand what you're saying, because it seems like if you write, if you set something and if you put your characters on a road, then they go from point A to point B, it's, you know? I think all characters are supposed to go from point A to point B, but if they're on a road, it's very obvious that they're going from point A to point B. And yeah. Like I said, it's harder to right. off because they're always moving forward. Um, so as far as Harriet Chance goes, which I just told you was a road book that you didn't know. <laughs> could she? I always just thought of it as a coming of old age, but yeah, I mean, it's just a linear seven day well, cruise ship, you know, yeah. But let's look into it, though. Could she have gotten where you needed her to go without getting on that cruise ship? Um, I think emotionally, possibly. I mean, it, it would require it would require her. You know, it was all a book about mothers and daughters. Um, I think it was much more effective to use that because getting Harriet out of her comfort zone. You know what I mean? She's walking around this house, patting around this house in her slippers, you know, this big empty house. And that was effective for a little while. But again, she was stuck. I needed to move her. And new environments and new experiences tend to trigger our, uh, you know, reflective selves, I think, a little more than just sitting around, you know, sipping coffee and looking out the window. Um, So I I don't know if it was necessary. I mean, what was necessary for me, again, this is a novel where it's, it's very similar in this respect to, I never really associated those books, but uh like Ben, Harriet needed to forgive herself. And mm-hmm. and you know, and so she 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 there could have been another vehicle for that, I suppose. But look, I just use the word vehicle, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I am curious too. This um it's not particularly a, a road trip question, but uh, maybe a little bit, but like so Harriet Chance, not at all you or your life fiction across the board, but of course uh, revised fundamentals has a lot of autobiographical elements to it. And I guess for you, I was very curious, you know, it's kind of the question of like, when you're mapping out a novel like um, like Revised Fundamentals and you're using real life stuff, how does that differ from when, in your process, from when you actually have never been on a cruise ship as a 80 year old woman or whatever? So you know, as as we know. I would uh, say in a way, the funnier they are, the more they're probably autobiographical because uh, when the characters are sort of based or inspired, at least as amalgams of regular people, I'm such a hyperbolic dude that, you know, I mean, I tend to start spinning things in a comic just because that's my temperament. 
And they're more often, I think, first-person narratives versus third-person narratives. Although I have done autobiographical stuff and sort of a third-person limited. But uh, yeah, I would say uh, it's a difference between first and third. I never use third omniscient. It's always third limited. I like it. I like the intimacy. It's it's so much better of a tool than an omniscient narrator is just, sure, it's convenient. You can get inside everybody's head. But without those varying points of view, you lose so many opportunities for tension, you know, because people uh, mishap, misapprehend each other and people don't, you know. So, uh, yeah, I would say the biographical ones tend to be first person. But there's always biographical material one way or another. I mean, you know, I mean, Harriet's kind of based on my mom in certain ways. I mean, her age and some of the things she says and things like that. And I really did go on that cruise ship. But I did it because I knew I was going to write the novel. Um, research. Yeah, yeah. that one off. Yeah. Ah, $5,000 cruise research. Um, before, you were, before you started talking about that, I was going to ask... Well, I wasn't even going to ask. I was going to say, I think for an elderly character that you want to change, you know, the old saying is people get set in their way. The, the best way to make them change is to jolt them somehow. And to put her on a cruise ship is a pretty effective way of jolting her into action. Everyone's not. Yeah. Listening. Well, it also helps when you find out your best friend had an affair with your husband for 30 years, too. That's that a pretty good jolt. So let's talk a little bit now, though, about inspirations. What might have inspired you? Chris wanted to ask this question, so I just stepped on his question. But that's okay. <laughs> Inspiration, as far as uh, you know, other texts, other books, um, some of your favorite, you know, road trip novels that you look to maybe when you're putting together revised fundamentals, structurally, or just the mood, or just kind of what books did you go to to kind of? Nah, come to on, what am I, some kind of pastiche artist here? It was all up here in my fucking bean, buddy. No, I'm not gonna look <laughs> somebody else. The last thing I want to do when I'm writing a big Northwestern epic is go out and read Annie Dillard's version or anybody, you know what I mean? I, I want to steer as far away from that as possible. I don't want to, I, because, you know, chances are I'm going to arrive at some of the same places and I don't want to feel like I'm copying somebody. You know what I mean? There is a zeitgeist and some of this, sometimes that's going to happen. I mean, with the same subject matter, you're going to go to the, some of the same places. So to go and look at those for me would just to be putting the reins on myself, make me a little too self-conscious about it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I would never, I never, I mean, I read just nonfiction books that are just facts, 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 or, you know, I'll do research and stuff, but I, I don't, I never want to like, you know, I've heard Jonathan Leatham talk about that, how like I was doing here is I was trying to do kind of my best Don DeLillo impression, or I'm kind of, I just don't, I just want to be me like me and you guys talking here as much as possible. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, you know, structurally that's one thing, but I don't, I don't, I don't really know any, I haven't really read a lot of books that are structured, like say something like West of here or something like uh, small world that are just, I mean, I think most writers aren't crazy enough to attempt that. Hmm. I mean, they're beyond reasonable narrative expectations to tell a story from 48 limited points of view. I can't really think of a lot of examples. Now, I don't mean for this to sound like hubris. I just mean the fact is, you know, I mean, I haven't read a lot of them. I think maybe Boyle's done something like that from, or, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, but speaking of research, um, when you write a book that takes place in a number of places, how important is it to you to get all those places right? Because I've had this conversation with other writers 
where they're like, yeah, you just make it up. I mean, it's your, it's your world. You get to make up stuff. Do you feel that way? Or do you feel like, oh, I want no. this. I have no. to speak into this gas station. It's completely essential that you get every single thing in your novel right. Because if you hit one false note <laughs> in 600 pages, you might lose the reader. You know, as readers, it happens. We're reading along. And then, I mean, it happens to me all the time with like HBO oh, shows, yeah. right? Like the first four episodes are good. And then all of a sudden I see the writers write themselves in the corner. It's like, I'm done. I can't even buy the whole conceit of the thing anymore because of one false note. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't even fathom saying you have to get it right. You have to get the essence of it right. You don't necessarily always have to go there. But Jesus, at the very least, you know, I'm getting on there with uh, Google Earth camera views right. of storefronts, mm-hmm. everything. I'm trying to get what the mountains look like in the background. I'm trying to do everything I can. The The trick is, you know, to obfuscate or to, to to get away with it or cheat is is that you really need to focus on fine details and make sure you get real fine details right because okay. if you get those little details right people will you've earned the reader's trust and then it's like yeah he's been here so but you know so one of the reasons why i went on that uh, that cruise was because when though you can cheat it always pays to go there when you can because I could have got uh, I could have got a blueprint of the boat. I could have interviewed a couple of uh, cruise ship uh, crew members and things like that. Found out about I've seen brochures about the various uh, bars and amenities, the Lido deck, uh, what kind of stuffs on the menu. I could do all the minutia, but I would have missed out on the stuff that's just so real that you just wouldn't have thought about it. Like, I mean, the first thing I noticed on that cruise ship is there's like a Purell dispenser every 15 feet, you know what I mean? Mm. And so like the cruise ship isn't going to tell you that nobody wants to even talk about it, but the truth right in front of you every 15 feet is if we have a GI breakout on this thing, we're heading back to land. This could get ugly. You know what I mean? That's why we, so just little details like that, uh, uh, or snatches of conversation and elevators, things like that. I wouldn't have had if I cheated. So you're at a disadvantage when you cheat, but I have to do it a lot because I wasn't alive in 1850 right. or, uh, you know, 14,000 BC either, you know, the detail, like the Purell bottle, something you wouldn't know unless you had been on the cruise ship. Are those the kind of details you zero in on? Oh, you- absolutely. Because it's quintessentially cruise ship. What yeah. could be more cruise ship? Cause when we, you just say cruise and we're all thinking it wrapped <laughs> in the hull. Uh, boats coming back from sea because 220 people got food poisoning. Uh, or the, you know, the pandemic boat, we're all thinking it. You just say cruise ship, it's, it, it enters into your mind. Like, <laughs> and so like to see, to see it embodied in Purell containers every 15 feet that they don't want to talk to you about it because they don't want you thinking about that when you're looking through brochures. You know, it's just quintessentially cruise ship. Okay, so when you took your characters in Revised Fundamentals to West Yellowstone, what were the details there? Well, I went to West Yellowstone. Uh, I've been to West Yellowstone uh, two or three times, and I just remember it really well. I've been there with my family, and I, I mean, I can see it. I can just see it in my head. I remember the town. Like, in that case, I didn't even need to go back and look at pictures. I remember exactly what it looked like, how the town was set up like an old frontier town with boardwalks and overhangs. And um, I knew exactly where the IMAX was and where the hotel I wanted him to be and how there was a diner across the street. And um, so, yeah, I mean... So, but, you know, again, sometimes like uh, for a small world, you know, the modern part of the, the, the uh, half of the book takes place in 1850 with all these different people converging from from China, from Ireland, crossing the continent, the transcontinental railroad meeting in the middle, all this convergences. But the modern story is about all these strangers on a train speeding from 
you know, speeding from Central Oregon to Seattle. And so, and though I had been on that uh, train many times, the Coast Starlight many times, especially down to Portland, but I've taken it all the way down to the Bay Area. I remembered the experience very well, but I needed to get the minutiae so well because this story is, you know, one of the one of the narrators is uh, is the actual engineer. So like I needed mm. I needed every mile post. I needed to remember exactly what each station looked like. I had to kind of look back. What does the yard look like? What you know what I mean? Because I had to be expert in my portrayal of it. So I actually took that road trip, whereas I didn't need to go to West back to West Yellowstone or across Montana or so those ones are just I lived them. They're on a journey too. Who's on a journey? In the in the new book, is Small World. Oh yeah, well, God, I guess it's a train trip. <laughs> I guess I, you got me, Larry. I just keep yeah. doing the same thing over and over, and I don't even see it. Um, huh. Well, yeah, well, I mean, look, it's about the native diaspora. So yes, yeah, I mean, it's about it's well, it's about the American diaspora. Period. It's about. Yes, God, the entire thing's a road novel. Yeah, I mean, the 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 Irish come to New York and then they immigrate to Chicago and then the twins get split up and one goes into the American West and one goes another way and and Worthy Warnock comes up from Kentucky to Chicago and uh you know uh the my Othello runs away and changes his name to George Flower and he's on the underground railroad headed north and then eventually when he's captured his wife and child go go across i mean there's just yeah so everybody is everybody is on a journey in this book on the move <laughs> yeah it's, it's all about movement god duh. So when you've been on you know these road trips doing your research how does your research work is you have there's a little notebook and you're just taking little notes about purell bottles and stuff like that or yeah you have... i get a green notebook spiral notebook because you know geniuses always choose green I think about that when I pick it out. I mean, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing. Uh, so I get a green spiral notebook and then I, you know, I uh, boldly write what novel I'm researching for it in a big Sharpie. And then I usually end up using about three pages of the damn thing. You know what I mean? But like, it's just something about making that $3 investment and like saying, this is this, but I usually end up, I mean, for West of here, I did, I filled like five of those things, but that was uh, more book research. So I'm just like paraphrasing things from, from history texts and stuff like that. But like when I took the train trip, I think I ended up with like three pages of handwritten notes, just very linear, but then I had to reverse them. You know, when I did, well, I took it, I think I only took it one way or something. And then, so I had to reverse everything going the other way. In my notes, I had to start working from the back of my notes to the front or something. I'd love to get a story of like your favorite, not necessarily something you've written about, but the, a favorite road trip that oh, you've taken. I got tons, man. I figured. I figured but the, so uh, I want you guys to imagine me at 17, 17 year old Johnny. This is post punk rock. I'm out of March of Crimes now. I'm out of my punk stage. I am now like full on, hopelessly young, alcoholic misfit, wants to be a writer uh, and totally into the beats. And so like I'm living in the Bay Area and I'm, I'm walking around in a, like a Serapi vest with a beret, uh, you know, my headphones got like Thelonious Monk. And I'm sitting on the bottom of City Lights bookstore in the basement reading Peter Orlevsky's book of clean asshole poems. And I just really I feel like I'm Jack Kerouac. You know what I mean? And so I had this I guess it's a, probably about a 74 Pinto hatch or not. Hatch, just, you know, the Pinto that exploded. Uh, I. 
And I put like 150,000 miles on this thing, man. I would just go anywhere. I would, I would do like a drug addled straight shot from San Francisco to Tucson, man. I mean, I would go like 17 hours at a shot, no particular destination. It was just all about being on the road, man. And, uh, and I was usually pretty poor because I was telemarketing in those days. And I remember one time I was down to like $6.30 or something. And these two runaway girls from San Francisco, uh, they were they were also like 16 and 17. Um, they were like suburban girls. They had credit cards. You know what I mean? They weren't like, you know, legitimate runaways. They were just rebellious suburban kids or whatever. But uh, they wanted me to take them on a road trip in their car. And I'm like, OK, I only got six dollars and 50 cents. You're going to pay my way the whole way and all that. And, and we ended up doing like seven states. And it was like February. I mean, uh, just some harrowing moments. Like I remember being between uh, on this snowy pass at like the, the road is at like 10,000 feet between, you know, maybe somewhere North of Taos or something. And like, I had, we're running on fumes and like we go and buy this thing, the sign that says next gas 56 miles or something, man. And we ended up making it, but it was just like harrowing because you're also at 10,000 feet with no guardrail in like some little, uh, you know, it was like a Honda Accord or a Honda Civic or something. And, and I remember we, uh, we snuck into, uh, Mesa Verde was closed, but we snuck in and hiked into Mesa Verde, which is also harrowing. But if you've ever been down to those Indian ruins, I mean, you're kind of climbing down some really steep areas, but there was like, you know, a foot of snow on the ground. And, uh, remember taking a leak at the four corners what is it where uh wyoming and is it wyoming utah arizona new mexico or something i just remember thinking i was real clever at you know 17 taking a leak and you know pinching it off taking a couple <laughs> steps over here pinching it off you know northwest east and uh that one was memorable the girl one of the girls i didn't really like her at first because she had a huge crush on me i was such a dick when i was 17 plus i'd been in a band where i was like you know i thought i was hot shit I, I got humbled shortly thereafter, but uh, I just wasn't into the girl. But by the end of the road trip, I was kind of in love with her. Did anything come of it? No, I, maybe love's a little strong. I liked her at the end. Uh, yeah, not, nothing ever. Uh, I still remember the girls were named Jenny and Indigo. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we, re we remained friends and stuff like that. But no, I never, she didn't become a romantic interest. I just remember... So it's like a road story, right? I mean, because see, there was this arc with us in the relationship. There's always a B story in life. So, you know, we had that linear road trip, but during it, there was this little thing where it was like two people, uh, one like the other. And by the end, uh, you know, the, the roles had sort of reversed. And, and you know, <clears throat> that's kind of a sad story then. Uh -huh. It was a good, good trip. And then I, I remember I did this road trip once with this guy named Tom the Mole. Uh, who looked exactly like uh, a cross between, and this is before David Foster Wallace was, I mean, David Foster Wallace was probably playing Little League, but he looked like, in retrospect, he looked like a cross between Neil from the Young Ones and David Foster Wallace. And his name, Tom the Mole, this guy from Palo Alto. And I remember we took like a two-week road trip and ended up camping in the mountains uh, outside of Vegas for a couple weeks at some campground. And we would go into Vegas twice a week with a, a Tupperware and go to like the Circus Circus Buffet and just fill the uh, fill the Tupperwares. Oh, and that food was just so bad. We'd eat it at the campsite for like three days and, uh, you know, like Ooh. cold Swedish or cold sweet and sour meatballs and just like oh. just, it was awful. But, you know, memorable. I'd live to tell about it. Uh, OK, I think we're out of time. to tell about it, probably. 
as as much as I could sit here and listen to several hours of your road trip stories because they're all better than mine. We are out of time. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on, Johnny, and, and great tales about, uh, well, your life and those and your road trip books. And I'm glad to have enlightened you of the fact that you write tons of road trip books. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, it's kind of what I do. I know. Um, and this yeah. new one is too, the Western is too. It's all about the trail. People going back and forth. I, I don't know how I didn't see it. I've always framed them as something else in my mind, but like they're all kind of. It's movement. It's all Most movement. of them are German. Yeah. yeah. God, I'm such a hack. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for coming on, Johnny. Yeah, it's great it's catching so up with you guys. Fun. I can't wait till Story Fort. We'll see. Albeit, you, you know, kind of Story Fort light this fall, but uh, totally looking forward to just being with you guys. Yep. Hopefully, you know, the 10th Street will be open enough that you know we can we can hold court down yeah, there. It's open uh, right now. Open. It's oh open. well, then we should be yeah. good. You know, uh, thanks to everyone, Johnny. You got a chance to direct people to any uh, website. I know you're a big Facebook guy, Twitter, your Instagram now. Let people whatever. Know. Yeah, you can look me up on most of those. Sure, but did look for uh, Legends of the North Cascades comes out uh, in a month in June, and then yeah. in January, Small World comes out. So two books in seven months. Unbelievable. So Legends of the North well, Cascades on that. Legends of the North Cascades will be out by the time you hear this. And uh, when you're Googling Jonathan Evison, make sure it's not the conservative politician from England. Fuck that guy. I'm so pissed. But it just you wait three more weeks and he's going to be buried in the feed. I mean, all the hits, all the media hits are going to be about author Jonathan Evison again. And that dickhead police commissioner in Humberside, you're going to have to scroll three, four pages to find anything about him. I'm going to make him irrelevant. All right. That was Larry and Christian's interview with Johnny Evison. My name is Jared Bostrom. I'm the editor of the Story Forward podcast. And to dive a little deeper into the summer road trip theme that we have this week, I sat down with my brother in community radio, DJ Dandelion. He hosts Rip Hobbin every Tuesday night on Radio Boise, right before my show, The Event Horizon Boogie. He goes on at 9, I go on at 11. Tuesday nights really are a place to be at Radio Boise. Anyway, we sat down to talk about a multi-generational quest to see Black Sabbath. So without further ado, may I introduce to you... DJ Dandelion, thank you for joining me. Here's to you, my friend. Here's to you. My brother in arms. We're talking about... The brother from another dimension, somehow. I'm not sure how that works out, you know. Poor Spider-Man and Carnage have flipped in some different universe where you and I are friends. Through various wormholes. We've we've ended up together. So, you know, uh, when you talk to me, you know... The idea of a road trip to me, and the reason why I think they're special, because road trips are fulfilling a passion in the sense of you make the commitment to take the time, mm-hmm. to make the plan, to do something more than just go from your house to a club that's only 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away, or whatever it is. You right. Know? Um, and there's got to be a reason behind it. Uh, yeah, you don't. More just, often than not, yeah. That's not just any band. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's it, it, and for me, the road trip was pretty special. This is part of the story. Is that so? I grew up in Nebraska and North Dakota, and then Idaho, ultimately. Okay. Which is all three are not really major touring stops for sort of music that I listen to yeah. then or now yeah. even. Um, so you just know, like, if you if you want to see a band, like a particular band. You're just gonna have to travel. You're just gonna have to. You're gonna have to do it. And I really never had the opportunity, uh, just because of the way it was, until I was. I mean, I did some road trips when I was in a band with my bandmates, 
but but the one that was kind of like my and there was the comfort in numbers on those ones so I don't really count them this yeah. is like the first proper like I'm doing this and I'm and oh I'm, you I'm, went out on your own on this. well I went with another guy okay and he was like me so he had grown up in Ryrie Idaho so yeah, no one goes there yeah so yeah. both of us are just from small agrarian towns not really used to big cities not used to the comfort of having bands come to you regularly yeah, right <laughs> and as it turned out and we were both uh, young lawyers at a law firm in town and it was one of the grind law firms and you just you know to sneak away time mm. was just an amazing you know you had to work hard to do it because basically you're there to sweat for yeah. them and we both realized that we had an affinity for black sabbath and I think, I didn't do my math, you'll have to, so correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was around 97 or 98 when Black Sabbath with Ozzy got back together. And this was also, this, I'll date myself, because mm -hmm. I know that's why it's got to be around 97, 98, because this is pre-internet. And uh, in, in pre-internet days, what you had to do was you had to find out like if a band was coming mm -hmm. and if they were coming in your locale you had to get the Ticketmaster number right. and then you had to wait uh, since we weren't obviously in the city which in this case was Salt Lake City since we weren't going to be able to stand outside the box office and camp out we had to sit there on the company phones sneaking away worried that the senior partners were going to find out about us hours you know. of music yeah instead yeah. of you know billing you know the point six every hour we were sitting there just on constant like hold and redial trying to get trying to get through so we could buy our tickets and uh, so I got through first mm -hmm. and we got a ticket to see Black Sabbath uh, in Salt Lake City nice. and I don't think age has changed the story I really feel like we got in early and we were able to get like not front row but like you know first 15 rows of okay. Black Sabbath mm -hmm. and so for him and I just this was like dream come true and so for six months we were just like this is we are we are going to see Black we're going to see Black Sabbath yeah. we are going to see yeah. Ozzy Osbourne Tony Ami and Bill Ward I mean the, and Geezer we're going to see the full of them yeah. and I don't know what their stage setup is and it doesn't matter we're just going to be there we're going to finally see Ozzy Osbourne we get in the car, and we have, which means that we have to like create an excuse with the senior partners why two of their their young mill workers are just going to disappear for three days because we're like, well, we're going to do this upright, you know, we're going to get there and just party it up and all that kind of stuff. Would Black Sabbath not be a good enough excuse? No, I mean, I, I don't think the senior partners are ever going to understand that one. Uh, at least from that firm, a later firm that I was in, probably would. They would have probably joined us uh, oh, okay. for this one, but this was this was the this was like the suit and tie every day. Mm -hmm. You need to be there at seven a.m. You need you better not leave before six p.m. Yeah, kind of firm. These are the guys that Black Sabbath write songs about. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly. <laughs> this is exactly right. So, like any road trip. We even planned out the playlist beforehand, you know, like, so how are we going to do this? We, you know, you know, we had between us, obviously, the Black Sabbath albums. Mm -hmm. And then each of us had various cassettes that we had acquired over time that had bootleg copies of, like, live Black Sabbath albums. Mm -hmm. This is where the Internet would have been nice to have. So we, we pull into town into Salt Lake City. There was not Yelp. There was whatever. We were just like, well, pick, the ho pick a hotel that's cheap because, again, we're... We're paying off student loans. We don't have a lot of money. Right, so, right. Uh, and each of us had families, uh, which was like another layer of approvals. You know, first you had to get the senior partners, then you had to get the spouses. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, we got to, so we were just like, 
gets the cheapest room near, I think still then it was called the Delta Center. I'm not entirely sure, but it was What the, would that be now? Is that the... I don't even think they... I think they don't even play in the Delta Center oh, okay. anymore, but... It's probably the Diet Dr. Pepper arena now. It, it, it yeah. probably... Yeah, it yeah. probably... Something like that, yeah. and whatever it was, <laughs> but, I, but we... But we pull into town. We'll go ahead and leave the name, the, the chain of the hotel alone. But it was a chain. But it was a chain hotel. and Hotel motel. The hotel motel. And definitely like, um, it wasn't the, it wasn't a Gene Simmons, you know, holiday inn sort of place, uh, but along those lines. And we walk in and then we have to sit there behind a heated exchange between the person at the desk and a very large person and a diminutive woman. And the person at the desk is explaining to the large person that he couldn't put the room in her name mm. because, quote, you and I both know what's going on in that room and I'm not going to have people coming in and out of the hallway all night. And he says, it's not that. She just needs a room for the evening. I'm paying for the room for the oh, evening. Oh, wow. Okay. He then gives the key to, to gives the key to her and again we're small little country boys. Well, I shouldn't say country. These are small agrarian boys. Yeah. This is all new to us. And then we go in and we to check in. And he's nice and he's happy. And he gives us the key, which just so coincidentally happens to be like, because we heard the room number that he told her. How's to be the room next to this, to the room that he was just having the fight about? <laughs> Look, we know what's going on in that room. So we have that kind of like in our head the whole time. We're yeah. just like, okay. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I and guess so we, we'll just have a lot of beer then. Yeah, I'm not really sure what we're going to Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we, we think about it. It was like, should we, should we go somewhere else? Yeah. I mean... Maybe we shouldn't stay at this hotel. We're like, but the Delta Center, it's right there. And, and it, you know did what? Did it have a pool? It did have a pool. Okay, but, well, yeah. I mean. There's but, pros and cons. So then Black Sabbath. Yeah. So we're like, well, it's Black Sabbath. Yeah. You know what? We're going to we're gonna check in. We're going to get the heck out of there. We're going to Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath is going to play till 11. Mm -hmm. Back in. We know we have to get up in the next morning to get back to the mill. So, you know, whatever that situation is, we don't need to worry about that situation. Right. Because we're just going to go to Black Sabbath. So... Then we start walking and we're laughing because as we're walking towards the Delta Center, we're like, did we get the, the time right on yeah. this show? Mm -hmm. Because I really would have expected Pretty to be a quiet. lot more people in the area, Yeah, you know, yeah. as we're getting there. I can't remember who the opening band was to be. And... So we pull out the old paper tickets and we're like, no, I mean, this is, we're at seven. We're, this is, this is when we're supposed to be here. We walk up to the Delta Center nothing there I mean there's nobody there and um, we walk up to the the ticket booth and there's just one person there and we're like did we get the venue wrong because we're, we're here for the Black Sabbath show and he just like has this dumb look on his face and he's like well it cancelled I'm like, no. What do you mean it canceled? He goes, well, Ozzy has a cold. It canceled actually two days ago. And I'm like, what cold do you have that you knew two days in advance? Get Ozzy a lozenge. <laughs> I, right now, I, I don't, I don't want to hear it. We took time off of work. Yeah. We drove to Salt Lake City. And we are here. And I don't know what's going to be waiting for us at the hotel now that that's the only place that we have to go. Yeah. Um, no and he goes, well, don't worry about it. Just hold on to your tickets. They're coming back. So what they've done is they've bumped it to the end of the tour. On okay. the end of the tour, they're gonna, they're gonna run back. Okay. So so we're like, uh, and look, I really think it was like a Tuesday. Now. It was like a Tuesday night, and there wasn't riff hopping and things like that to listen to. You know, Van Horizon Boogie on a Tuesday night. No, there's. 
the radio was really Yeah, you remember what Tuesday nights before point. our radio yeah. shows. Yeah. Just dead. So we had nothing, and then we're in Salt Lake City, which, you know, is when we first found out about the liquor laws and all that kind of stuff. I'll skip the hotel story. I'll just tell you, it's that... The, Everything that we ex- that we were worried about, in fact, happened at that time. Happened. And we just sat there like two huddled, terrified. Like, we were 25, reduced to 12-year-olds, like at summer camp, <laughs> waiting for the bullies to beat on the door. Cops eventually showed up. And we were just like, just get through the night. This is the- but remember, we're going to see Oz. It's, it's going to be all worth it because yeah. we're going to see Ozzy in August or September or whatever it was. <laughs> okay. So then just like defeated, poor puppies we just like get in the car and it's such drive a all the way it's such a home. sad little drive because we we were so excited and expecting yeah by the time we get back we're like you're not going to appreciate this but we just saw black sabbath that's what we did i know you spent the day billing but you know what we did we saw black sabbath yeah. so now you flash forward same thing so now it's september mm-hmm. and we're like okay it's august September, whatever it was and we're like excited it's like okay now we're gonna see black sabbath so same thing pull out the cassette no cds pull out the cds mm-hmm. we're like we're gonna run these through we're down there you would have thought it would have clicked in our heads you know what just given maybe we should just call right maybe we should call just to make sure but we did we're like well ozzy wouldn't cancel no he went twice twice that's ridiculous but yeah i mean he, he owes salt lake city this show no drive down there get into town choose a different hotel Okay. Yeah, Pull up the hotel, way. and it's the sort of yeah. We pay the we pay the extra fifty dollars or whatever it was to get a hotel. Made sure it had a pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like usually, like when you know at the hotel, like so, what are you in town for? And we're like, we're here to see the Black Sabbath show. And he goes, the Black Sabbath show. Oh my god. And we're like, <laughs> and so he goes, yeah, they canceled. And we and we pause and we go, are you messing with us? Is that what's happening here? There's no way he canceled. And we're like, did he? Did they really cancel? He's like, no, they again? they canceled. Uh, I don't remember what exactly the excuse was, but maybe it was like the you know the tour had gone on long enough, yeah. And they're like, we're not going to go back to Salt Lake City, and so we end up getting our tickets refunded. And I'm like, well, God. that's it. So then that's why I call this the the the, the pursuit of this particular road trip. Hmm. This is. The Aussie hates me story. Because by this point, now we're into 2016. I think we figured out. It's been 20 years. And it's been 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as, I mean, that's even a longer period than Black Sabbath was together. Yeah, right? think about it. And I'm just like, I'm convinced he hates me. Because every every opportunity I've seen, and so I even stopped trying. Like, I had opportunities to go see them. I was like, mm. well, there's no reason. And I found out later, like on the Osborne show, the whatever that TV show that he was on. Oh, the Osborne. The Osborne. Yeah. That Sharon would always cancel. That he would yell at Sharon if he if Black Sabbath had to do back to back nights. Oh, really? Okay. Because Ozzy couldn't do back to backs, mm. and so he, apparently he had a habit of if it was a back to back show of canceling the second of the two shows. Oh, really? I didn't know that. You know, I won't do back to backs. I'm surprised they let that air. Yeah, <laughs> that seems like. So, with all that being said, so then it's 2016. So I've given up. And my not gonna see Ozzy. I'm just yeah, I'm just, it's never gonna happen. And yeah. then remember, it was the final final. Remember when Black Sabbath came out and said we are getting back together minus Bill Ward, but we are getting back together and this is it. This is the, the, the I think they even called it isn't the the end tour. Yeah, this is the end. I was tempted. I was like, you're not getting me this time, so forget it. But my son, 
who was working in oil wells not too far from Las Vegas, mm -hmm. for my birthday, gave me a ticket to go with him to go see Black Sabbath. Okay, in Vegas. In Vegas. Okay. Now I had a new road trip partner, so I met him down in the oil uh, country where he was working. Yeah, super and, metal, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was down in, he was down in like uh, the southern part of Utah. Mm. So I drove through Salt Lake City, rem remembering all of like the prior <laughs> trips that I had gone. Just dark cloud Just over dark Salt clouds. Lake City. Got to, yeah, got to Utah. My son and I got in the car with another friend of his. We drove to Las Vegas. And um, when you are excited to see a band, you spend time talking about the band, right? Yeah. And so this was this great generational moment now. Whereas before, the back in the, the late 90s, trying down on two unsuccessful, unsuccessful attempts to see Black Sabbath, you know, it was me with the person who was my age talking about Black Sabbath. And now here I am, you flash forward, and now I'm here with my son who's just a little, I think he was, at that point in time he was 23, so just a little past 21. Okay. Uh, which is, of course, not the subject of this topic, but that's a dangerous time to be in Las Vegas. A, yeah, that's a, true. A 23-year-old. Yeah. But, you know, so then that was, an, that, that was another great one. So then, you know, we're playing Black Sabbath, we're talking about Black Sabbath, mm -hmm. and we're talking about it in, like, the two generations removed. Because obviously I was born in 69, so I wasn't there for Black Sabbath. I was listening to him one step removed. Yeah. And yeah. now my son is two steps removed, but living it through me because he had to put up with me playing Black Sabbath yeah. at the house. And now it's it seeped its way in. Yeah, that's how I learned Black Sabbath. Right. We drive to Las Vegas. We get to Las Vegas. We stay at the Hard Rock Hotel. Much like me, but then amplified by 10. This is his first experience in like Las Vegas big city 23 and so him and his buddy are just i mean they are living like they are living like ozzy osbourne and yeah. not being being mindful of the fact that they still have to get to the show right i think that rubs off on you at that age like when you're about to see someone excessive you feel like you have to be excessive as well. And they were all in. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't, in fact, that was his and father I'm, didn't. Saying that, I'm, I'm in that age group, so that I, I understand. So, I, yeah, so you know, I, I, we're bopping from casino bar to casino bar, and they're just, they're hitting it up, and I'm just like, now I'm like being in the far, like, but we need to get. But Ozzy. We're getting to the Black Sabbath show. <laughs> At this point, it's like your life's purpose. Yes. It's a quest. It has become It has become a quest for me. So finally, finally, I get to see Black Sabbath in 2016 on the end tour. It was everything that I hoped they would be. Yeah. You know, when you see Ozzy as like the, no, I mean, I, I love Black Sabbath and all that, but so I don't mean to be hurtful, but mm -hmm. me... In the show, he comes off as like a doddering old man, and so you're worried, like, how, yeah. how's this going to be? There's some sort of muscle memory in that guy. Like, the minute that he comes on stage as Ozzy of Black Sabbath, it just... I feel like it's almost all he knows how to do. Mm -hmm. oh, so great. Yeah. And that was just like... And then there was... It was just like this moment for me, because like I had said, I had thought Ozzy hated me. Yeah. I had spent 20 years in... If you count them all in total, five separate road trips to try and get to see some version of Ozzy, but really, I was just there to see Black Sabbath, right? Yeah. And there they were on stage, and you know, and it was just, it was just, it was just it. And you were like, that's why, 
That's why we keep after it. That's why we drive. That's yep. the music is the moment. That is the moment for us of just saying, this is why it was all worth it. So I didn't, I wasn't mad at him in that moment for the two prior ones. It became like, at least the story has a great conclusion that I finally got to see Ozzy and Black Sabbath on their final. Well, that's, and that's why they're Black Sabbath. And that's why it doesn't matter how many miles you have to travel. That's no matter where it was. I would tell anyone if Black Sabbath ever did reunite do the trip Take man that's why you do the trips yep. you do the trips for those moments and if COVID hasn't taught us the importance of like chasing those moments anything does I mean yeah. that was a great reminder of just what that was right, right. that was uh, a great discussion from Johnny a great story from Jared though once Johnny Evanson starts telling a story yeah it's really hard to follow that <laughs> this is true <laughs> but that's why we love him <laughs> Thanks for listening this week. Um, we have a Facebook group, a Story Forward podcast group. Uh, to join that, go to the show notes and um, you'll find the link there and you can come and interact and, and comment and offer suggestions and whatever you like. We're here for you. Yeah, share your stories. We also have our social media links uh, in the show notes as well. And of course, if you want to throw a little money in the tip jar... Make this all possible. Yes, we could use some money. Johnny Evanson could use a little bit of extra <laughs> beer money when he's here in Boise in the fall. How that guy ever has to pay for his own beers, I'll never know. But if you want to do that, go to the eavesdrop uh, site at ease-drop.com. Speaking of eavesdrop, let's thank them. Let's thank Brett Battistain and all the fine folks at eavesdrop Studios, a podcast network that we are a part of. We really appreciate all the hard work, and we want to thank Jared not only for his story today, but for editing, helping edit this podcast and layer in some tunes for us. And yeah, thank you, Larry. How about <laughs> thank that? you, Christian. And thanks to our guest, Jonathan Evison. Uh, his latest book is Legends of the North Cascades. It is epic. It is. Go pick that up. That is it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about summer camp. We are. So I join know. us then. And until then... Always move the story forward. That's right. Advance the narrative.